This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. Uh, this is episode 33 and tonight we're going to be talking about the Castle of Cagliostro, um, a early Miyazaki property, but it, this is unquestionably going to be a show packed with legendary names from a legendary creation to a legendary creator to a legendary animator. We're going to be tripping over more legends than we trip over history here in Brother. Before we obviously get into our main features tonight, we obviously have to ask, as always, and that's what you've been watching. So, Stephen, since the last show, what's uh, been holding your interest, if anything? Well, I haven't watched very much Asian-wise, okay. um, and uh, as, as, as often seems to be the case these days, <laughs> um, I've been boning up on basically a lot of films by female directors um, because I've got another side job um, working on another website and maybe a bit of podcasting as well for a new website that's um focusing on female filmmakers and not just filmmakers but directors of photography and, and 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 sort of producers and driving forces so i've been catching up on this year's um some pretty mainstream films um that i've enjoyed it a lot and i've also been doing a fair bit of background work on the chinese american actress anna may wong Back from the 20s, silent actress. Um, an article for them about that. So I've gone back and looked at a couple of things like Toll of the Sea from 1920-odd and uh, Piccadilly again from the 20s. Um, silent movies. Oh, nice. Go me. <laughs> Indeed. It's really going to be a fun comparison to myself because I've just not been watching anything that's classy, really. So, well, I think, isn't isn't that our normal mode of operandi? You, you, you get some class and you get some trash. <laughs> The first film I want to talk about was uh, Heroes from the East in 1978. This is a film which I really wanted to see since it's, uh, they had a bit of a preview over on the El Rey network uh, on Facebook. They used to show like trailers of whatever they're showing, and this one popped up with a introduction by Reza. And uh, if you obviously are not familiar with the, the film, it uh, reunites the dream team pairing of Gordon Liu and director Long Kei Lung. And uh, basically, it uh, sees uh, Gun Lu being married off to his father's, um, the daughter of his father's Japanese business associate. And it starts off kind of like a romantic comedy, but with kung fu, and then sort of descends into more of a sort of like a tournament fighter. As uh, basically, he, he's this sort of hot headed uh, martial arts student, and she's interested in martial arts as well. But they obviously have rival styles and rival weapon choices and stuff. And you obviously got the the comparison there between obviously Chinese martial arts and Japanese martial arts, which is fun. And after he uh, inevitably upsets her, she heads back to Japan, and in a attempt to win her back, he sends her a letter, basically being rather derogatory about Japanese fighting styles, and ends up having to face a bunch of uh, Japanese martial arts masters uh, to sort of prove uh, his worth to her. And it's really interesting, the fact, obviously, the fact that we've got this blending of styles there and the fact you get to see not only sort of Kung Fu versus Ninjutsu as sort of like the final sort of like a big one, but we also get to see things such as like the Japanese Katana versus the Chinese Jian, which is a double-edged sword. We also get to see like Nunchuck, uh, Nunchuck versus the Free Section Staff. And as I said, it builds up to this really fantastic uh, showdown with uh, the Ninjutsu style or the Crab style, as it's called here, uh, versus the sort of more traditional Kung Fu. And it's also interesting the fact that here we have a film where they're not fighting to the death, it's to fighting to like a, a conclusion where the opponent is beat so it's all about honor and respect and um i thought it was a real sort of nice mix-up there the other kung fu movie for this month um really came from a list i got from the uh, guys over the gentleman's guide i was asking for you know just fun kung fu movies things like master of the flying guillotine and if you were uh, looking at our facebook page you see the uh my 
horrible handwriting list of the uh, the list that they put together for me. And one of the first films I saw this list was a film from 1983 called Shaolin Drunkard. This is a film when you look at the obviously the people involved, you would assume it's going to be a lot better than it is. Um, as this is Young Wu Ping who's directing, and here he's actually working with several of his brothers. And uh, basically, you've got a a lot of really weird randomness. We've got a drunk Shaolin monk who's sent off to find this vampire demon uh, martial arts master. And along the way, we've also got uh, this uh, other young guy who's being forced to find a bride. And the two of these guys basically thrown together. But the real sort of appeal of this one is just the real randomness as i said this is a film that involves vampires and monster toads and we've got drunk monks we've got a scene where one of the martial arts masters is using a life-size marionette to fight our two heroes and it's a lot of real randomness but at the same time there's some real problematic humor and i think we highlighted this video again that we posted on the facebook page and there's like a, a couple of rape jokes there which is like may have worked at the time but wow is that uh feel a bit wrong watching it now I mean, do you ever find yourself like stumbling across stuff which has got that sort of questionable humour, or? Oh, and certainly in um, in Hong Kong films, um, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of that. Um, even even fairly recently, um, they 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 well, they'll base whole films around rape, and it's quite often it's used with comic effect which is incredibly uncomfortable I mean, there's a whole series of films like our old friend um mr anthony wong who, who i think we both enjoy his work yes um he, he he's certainly been in a few raped by an angel films um so that's just in the title but like in, in the odd comedy i can't think of exact examples but yeah rape and sexual violence are used quite often for for, for comedic effect and it I'm not sure I'd ever felt particularly comfortable, but it's always easy, isn't it, talking from the comfort of of the contemporary? And um, did, did we let things go? I mean, you hear racial epithets and things like that, um, uh, homophobic epithets that now we are probably much more aware of. I think certainly when we compare, especially to Western culture, then you can, I mean, I caught Dirty, Dirty Harry for the first uh, time last night. Um, I know, shame on me, but, you know, I grew up as a Kaiju kid, not a Clint Eastwood fan, so I'm now making up for filling in these holes, and when you watch, like, Daddy Harry, and there's, like, every racial slur going, and just everything's really sleazy, and then when you look at, like, 80s, um, the 80s are, like, sex comedies and teen comedies, there's a lot of really rapey humour in there, and at the time you think, wow, this is, people thought this was okay to to have uh, these sorts of scenes. I think there's a, a questionable scene in like Fast Time at Richmond High, I think it is. It's the one, or one of the John Hughes ones. I know the John Hughes ones. Uh, 16 Candles has uh, some very interesting Orientism in there, should we say? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean that's a whole, there's a whole pod in itself. I mean, I have this debate with my, my youngest daughter's 17, and she's very, um, should I say woke? Is that, is that the right word to use? You know, I think this is the word. Uh, this is what the kids are using. So uh. yeah, so 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 I felt I felt a hundred years old just saying that out loud. <laughs> but we we often have a not a debate. I try and tell her what things were like, and I I grew up. My my, my childhood was the seventies and the eighties, so probably sort of a decade earlier than yours. And the casual racism, the casual homophobia, the casual uh, talk about like sexual sexual violence and the like. Um, it was, I mean, what's the saying? A past is another country. And it was, it's very much like that, you know, and things that we didn't even bat an eyelid at or things that my parents would say out loud in public, which now, even now they would probably crawl up and die if they thought that they'd said it. But we did, we were less educated. We were less aware. Um, And I guess things like the internet and social media mean that, everything is jumped upon anyway within three seconds of it getting out there um and yeah and sometimes i guess you just have to be able to separate the the past from from the now and give give it give it a a frowning but also understand contextually what things were like it doesn't mean that they were right then no it just means things were different and our sensitivities 
and our understanding of what that means is different. Definitely. I think when you look at society now compared to society then, I mean, we're much more a much more blended society than we ever used to be. Um, we're now like this real hot pot of like ideas and cultures and and race and it's just this fantastic uh ideas now and at the same time it's not we can't be like disney and just whitewash the past and just like lock it away and go yeah that never happened i think it's important to look back at these things so that we don't repeat these mistakes we just acknowledge that view these things like little time capsules of a time and place and just you know as i said you just it's part of the cause if you're going to go back and look at retro things there are going to be things that aren't going to sit right with your modern sensibilities and you just got to as i said you just got to acknowledge that they're there and and try and assess things for what they what they are as a whole really oh i i, I could i couldn't agree more and, and this is the debate i'm having with my daughter you know you might not like hearing the n-word in these films but it used to be the word that was used um funny enough quite often our debates around quentin tarantino films um, <laughs> and 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 which she which, which on the whole she loves but there's some she'll refuse to watch like yeah. django unchanged because she knows what's in it and and it's it, it's and whether or not we agree or disagree with what he's doing i mean that's hardly back in the past but he's he's been influenced by a um he's same age as me so you know or, or similar age to me so he he's being influenced by films from the 70s that use those words with gay abandon um both rightly and wrongly um, i think you also have to say with the, with the fact with tarantino his his whole upbringing he was brought up in predominantly black neighborhoods so all the sort of lingo and the environment he was grown up with were obviously these may be the the community is maybe able to use these 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 words and reclaim these words. I mean, it's obviously a bit different because obviously him being a white guy that you know you don't have that same uh, freedom. And I think this is what led to Spike Lee um, calling him out for his use of the end where he said, "Well, what's he want to be like? Made an honorary black man?" And it's like, no, this is just Tarantino using the culture he was he came up through, and in many ways like many other like many things he pays homage to it's as i said he pays homage and um emulates a lot of the things that he sort of grew up around and and with so indeed which is which is kind of the point it's about context mm. and uh, yeah i think i think actually the most dangerous thing would be to wh- i hate the phrase but whitewash the past yeah yeah, we absolutely have to learn from that, and it. But it does. But it's when it crops up in the strangest of places, and you just think, "Oh, ah, <laughs> I didn't hear, I didn't hear that the first twenty times I saw that film, and now, I, now it sticks out like a sore thumb." And I guess that's what you have to say is that's a good thing, yeah. And that, and that, that we are now aware of it. Even, even old white men like me are are hearing hearing what was wrong in the past. Mm. That's why I appreciate the Warner Brothers when they put like the cartoon collections. They don't, they never edit anything. They put the little card at the front and says that we acknowledge that we preserve this for historical context. And unlike Disney, who would like just lock everything in the vault that's not um, suitable now for modern eyes, they just um, lock it away. So. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's stuff equally as bad in a Betty Boop cartoon as there was in Song of the South, but we're never going to ever see another release of song of the south are we <laughs> yes <coughs> and, and sometimes you think maybe rightly so maybe not but it still exists and it should be used as a you know as a teaching exercise or something like that um i mean we but, 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 but hiding it dumbo's got those yeah. uh questionably racist crows it, in, indeed it has um but you know that's uh, a lot easier to overlook than what song of the south is uh pretty much yeah. throwing in your face isn't it so it, it 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 is but yes i think it's very important not to edit them i mean i don't even like it when people go back and edit their own films for you know for for for, for storytelling reasons um i know yeah um don't 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 do it george um netflix as well i mean netflix edited 13 reasons why a program meant for you know mature adult audiences and um they went back and edited a key sequence from that from that first season. It's sort of like you know why why Netflix? You're supposed to be like the hip forward thinkers here, and uh, you're um, going and, back bowing to pressures here. And and it, and it was an incredibly key sequence as well. Um, you know they 
they, they did get criticised for it, and, and maybe rightly so. But, yeah, you can't change history. Because if you do, that's a dangerous that's a dangerous precedent to set. On to a slightly more flat, classy affair, I finally watched uh, Cuba on the Two Strings from 2016. Yes, I know it's an American property, but it's obviously set in ancient Japan. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is a film that I've made, made several attempts to watch, but I've always, like, fallen asleep because I've just watched it too tired enough. But, um, if you've not checked out Cube on the Two Strings, definitely check it out. Um, it's, um, I believe the studio's, uh, Lakia, I want to say. Lakia, who, uh, sort of bringing back, uh, the stop-motion style. They obviously did Coraline and Quartz Bride and... Now we're the more recent that they've done things such as like the box trolls and Cuba on the two strings and Cuba on the two strings. It's such a wonderful blending of, of stories. It's obviously got the Eastern um, elements throughout the film and just the character design and the journey and everything. It's just such a wonderful film. You just might be just drawn in and just entranced by this movie if you give it a chance and don't dismiss it being thinking it's a kids movie because as I said it's it's a um, got a very sort of grown up edge to it it's very feels like it's not dumbing things down just for a, a kid's audience it's telling a very um as i say a very sort of uh grown-up sort of story here and i, I really enjoyed uh cuban the two strings so if you've not had a chance to check it out yet definitely uh check it out it's normally available on one of the streaming platforms or if you've got uh like film four over here in the uk it's shown on there quite a lot as well so I know. Um, I I haven't seen it. I I but I really love Coraline. I, I assume it's pronounced Laika, like the, the like the Russian space dog, but who knows? Um, but yeah, it's something I've always wanted to see. I lo- like I said, I love Coraline. I love stop motion, um, or pseudo stop motion, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> and um, it's a film I've just never managed to catch at the right time. But I utterly intend to. Now you've um, given it the thumbs up. I'd be interested to see what you uh, what you make of it. So before we obviously talk about our our featured selection for this evening, I said the Castle of Cagliostro. Um, I just wanted to obviously talk a bit about Loop in the Fed because I'm not sure for yourself, Stephen. I mean, do you know anything about the character at all? Or? I know a little bit about it, mostly around sort of boning up for this this episode so if you have a uh, a potted history for us i think i'd enjoy to hear that yeah i mean i'm not gonna go i'm just gonna obviously give you the framework for the character because there's many elements about looping the fed and how he's been portrayed in the past which i think if you if we filled in all the many different sides of looping the fed much like james bond has many different sides it made a sort of like color how you uh take the film so i'm just gonna obviously give the the outline for the uh, character but um if you're obviously not familiar with lupin uh the third he is a globetrotting master thief whose name is actually a tribute to arsene lupin who is a french master thief uh created by maurice leblanc in back in 1901 the character himself he was uh created by uh kazuhiro Hiko Kato, um better known by his pen name of monkey punch and uh, he first created the manga version back in 1967 shortly after in 1970 we get the pilot trailer for the series which would follow in 1971 originally only getting 26 episodes the series managed to really sort of put Lupin out there in the public sort of conscious and it was really through the repeats that we got a longer series in 1977 uh, which ran for 155 episodes in turn leading to the first of the movie versions which was the secret mano uh sorry the secret mamo uh which was released in 1978 now this film follows uh castle castle cagliostro uh follows uh, one year later in 1979 and uh both those two films they were actually edited down into a dragon's layer style interactive game that you can uh play in the arcade and we actually put the uh the clips up again up on the facebook and and that and i will put them in the show notes so you can enjoy them as well but um they create they edited the the action scenes from the films to create this arcade game and if you ever played dragon slayer you would know it was just basically designed to steal money you just put in quarter after quarter after quarter because these games you had to have like lightning sort of reflexes to get them and you had to like memorize all the different uh moves because otherwise you made like one small move and it was just like game over 
But uh, the game it uh, was uh, called Cliffhanger, and as I said, it really again put Lupin back out there. And it was with uh, Castle Cagliostro. It was really one of those early titles that uh, Manga Entertainment picked up here in the UK. So after they had had obviously success with the likes of Akira, sort of kickstarting their their sort of catalogue and uh, series such as like Dominion Tank Police and Giant Robo, um, there was a lot of sort of excitement. Uh, about Lupin the Fed, although he was not really a character sort of known over here, so it was, uh, I think, what really sort of gave Cagliostro that boost above the other films, so is the fact that Steven Spielberg regarded it as one of his favourite animations, so it's got that sort of uh, prestige to it, even if you remove uh, Murakami from it, who would obviously go on to fan studio Ghibli, and I think the fact that Murakami made it before uh, they found Ghibli is now meant that uh, many people view it as being part of the, the catalogue. And I don't know whether it's just uh, the people putting out the DVDs, but if you buy the Studio Ghibli catalogue, they often include it there as well. The film itself, as a, this is the second film, but you don't need to have seen the series or anything else um, at all. It's, Basically, the film is a standalone adventure. And uh, we open with um, Lupin and uh, his colleague Jigen, who's kind of like a mobster sharpshooter. He's one of his Lupin's gang, which also includes the samurai Gormon, who is there for no discernible reason other than it's cool to have samurai and stuff. As uh, many British anime fans would tell me whenever I question the fact that we got a samurai in a thief movie. But... He uh he certainly comes into play, but basically the the pair of them have just ripped off a Monte Carlo casino with a huge stack of money, and they realise that the money they've stolen is complete fakes. And uh, rather than you know lament their loss, they decide that they're going to find out where the source of the fakes are coming from and head to the castle of uh, Cagliostro. Along the way, they encounter a young woman who's been chased by a gang of thugs and uh it turns out that she's this this princess who's uh due to be married off to the count in a sort of a arranged marriage that's going to cement his uh his power and in turn reveal the fabled uh treasure of cagliostro so um steven is this a first time watch yourself or Hey, I'm Mr. I don't watch anime, so yeah, you could take it to it. It was a first time watch. This is a watch, yes. movie. I mean, this is why well, I don't. Well, it, well, it isn't, but yeah, <laughs> as you just said. Um, no, it was a first time watch for me. And um, But I was. I have bizarre history with um, with Lupin the Third, um, because the first time I got exposed to it was, uh, it was a live action film from yeah. about five years ago, I want to say. Um, I got asked to review for EasternKicks.com, and I never got all the way through it. Um, it was when Warner Brothers were trying to do... I don't know, they were trying to link up... They were trying to do English and Japanese stuff that would have the same same market. So um, they did a version of Unforgiven, for example. Um, we remade um, Unforgiven with Ken Watabane in it, and uh, Wanatabi in it, sorry. Which was pretty good, and this was like the, the next one along, and... I was, I was both bored and confused by the whole thing, <laughs> and um, I don't think it did terribly well. Full stop. I don't think I was the only person to be um, hugely disappointed by it. Okay. Um, but yes, yeah, so 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 I came to this with a. I didn't know what to expect. The good news is I really enjoyed it. Yay! That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, can I show it's it's one of those sort of forgotten films on the when we look at like the the Ghibli list it's one of the ones that always seems to uh, get uh, forgotten much like Nautica Valley of the Wind um, I don't know why people when it's because they're not as whimsical as like the later films like Totoro and Spirited Away and, and whatnot but for some reason these these early films they always seem to get forgotten and certainly when you look at um, Castle Cagliostro it's very different than anything Murakami's directed since mainly because as I said it's not there's no sort of whimsy there. It's all, it's just like basically a, um, it's kind of like a adventure film where we've obviously we've got this master thief who's got a few simple gadgets, kind of like James Bond, but at the same time has got this amazing cat burglar like ability to scale buildings uh, with ease, and he's able to leap between ramparts uh, 
doing these insane leaps that no other man would would have and also gets to engage in exciting blues brothers style car chases as we get with the opening sequence which i have to say is just like such a an exciting sequence especially for an animated film it's never easy to do action and animation and certainly this car chase sequence is just so much fun the invention and the and the way that it's shot it feels like you could take the sequence and shoot it as a live action sequence it's very uh comparable um uh, yeah it's <laughs> i mean it's it, it's it's both um so he's got his little um fiat 500 hasn't he and <laughs> yeah, and he's <laughs> and uh they're racing along the 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 the, the, the tight mountain roads in a very classic sort of 60s car chasey kind of way um uh, one of the cars is a 2CV, a Citroen 2CV, and the and the cars kind of move and mould their way through tiny gaps and fabulous bit where he goes up the mountainside and down again and tyres burst and things fall apart. Although, interestingly, w- one thing I did love about the Fiat 500 is that it maintained a lot of its damage throughout the film, didn't it? It um, reminded as, as me... Saw it, again. Uh, <laughs> it reminds me a lot of the car in the, uh, Big Blue. Yeah, uh, Gene Reno's little get around car because the fact that, as I said, they don't have this uh, this flashy motor, as you said, it's just a little Fiat 500 that they're cruising around in. Which I have to say that I don't know what they got under the engine, but for some reason, <laughs> Fiat 500, they don't move like that. I'm telling you that. Well, I like the bit halfway through in that sequence, suddenly there's all the, the boot comes up and there's a jet engine in there or something like that. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of but yeah, it's, it's just it's just um, I think that sequence sort of. It's almost the highlight of the film in some ways to me because it's just uh, we've had we've already had a um, we had the scene earlier on at the beginning when they're robbing that Monte Carlo um, casino and the car comes out and then they've done all these things to the other police cars like taken all the wheels off or chopped them in half and stuff like that and it all continues on this sort of this 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 whole car element until they get to the town the, the city of um oh gosh i got i've got to learn how to say it now um the city state of uh, cagliostro isn't it yeah. um and 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 there's just this, this, this energy about it and and it's the sort of thing you could possibly only do in animation um, well, you definitely could only do an animation. I mean, I can't imagine if um, the Fast and the Furious guy is pulling off something as as humorous as that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the thing that that really sort of helps the film. The fact it is, it's got these bursts of of action and drama and and humor throughout it, and it it's really so surprising the the many moods it goes. But at the same time, it's a very I don't know about yourself, but I found the first, the opening forty minutes is a little bit of a slow burn, which I could see been a bit off-putting for people because it's spends a lot of time out you know just setting the outline of the castle and building the mystery and after that initial car chase you have to wait a fair sort of time before we get back into the action again which um i could see it being a bit off-putting to some that's funny i had the opposite feeling i really appreciated the uh the the, the build-up to it um the we got you know, because I wasn't. I mean, I guess the ideas when the film was made, people would have been aware of the manga. People would have been aware of the first film, and I think the TV show had already was already out, wasn't it? Um, so I got I got to learn a little bit about Lupin himself. I got to learn a little bit about his his psychic fella, um, and there was a there was a mystery straight. You know, there was a mystery there. Um, so I I was all right with that. For me, I found that. Um, that slow burn as you call it okay because that's that's kind of what i want out of a mystery but i also got to understand the the characters at least within the and something we might talk about i think is you know at least within the um the, the, this film's universe because i don't think the characters are necessarily quite how they are in the rest of the rest no. of the um rest of the uh, canon yeah and i know this is why a lot of people who are like big Lupin fans, they say that the Lupin we see in Cagliostro is like an imposter Lupin, but at the same time, we he's been changed that many times, depending on who's writing him in the books or how he's been portrayed in the in the anime. You've got to kind of like view it like James Bond movies, in the fact that different actors played him in different ways. Whereas obviously we've got Sean Connery, sort of like classic 
catchy one-liners you know he gets the job done george lazenby and um like um who's daniel craig they're kind of like the more throwbacks like fleming's traditional ideas and in many ways timothy dawson's the same where he's the fug in a dinner jacket and uh, then we've got roger moore who's kind of like the ladies man and then uh, Peter Porson is sort of like, you know, James Bond, suave and charming uh, guy embodied. So whereas the different actors brought out different sides of the James Bond character, I think with the Lupin films, they kind of like different. It kind of changes and you've got to sort of view each one as a, a case by case and just accept that this is a character who changed many times over the years, depending on who's obviously working on it. And so when we look at... Um, the first film, uh, Secret of Mammal, is much more. It's it's really sort of zany, sort of action adventure. It's kind of like Moonraker, in a way. It's just really stupid, but kind of it's really fun at the same time. Yeah, no, it, it, it it's it's hugely entertaining and it's funny as well. Yeah, um, a lot of Ghibli films, because we'll call it that for for the sake of this discussion. Um, can be charming, can be entertaining, but they're rarely slapsticky funny. Yeah. I mean, this one's slapsticky funny from beginning to end. Um, to the extent, I mean, the the music's a bit on the nose, is it? <laughs> and the sound effects are a bit. Oh, certainly in the version I had, yeah, because uh, it appears there's lots of versions. But the version I had, um, wheels fell off and they were wee bonk, and there was, um, <laughs> you know, it was it was very cartoony, which isn't how I necessarily view Ghibli films as a whole. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, even when you like look at how the characters pronounce, if you're listening to the dub, he's uh, Lupin's called Wolf, mm. or sometimes Rupan. I think Wolf is the more common one. If you watch it on Netflix with the dub, or if you've got like the streamline release, then he's called uh, Wolf. And uh, this is mainly just due to the copyright. And yes, yes. There's uh, even back when we're like looking at how uh, LeBlanc was was do- doing um, doing his his version of Lupin. I mean, there was he had a whole thing where he was basically ripping off Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but you know, whereas Monkey Punch actually waited for LeBlanc to die first, um, like LeBlanc had no such gentlemanly honor at all. He was just like, well, um, Conan Doyle was uh, still alive. He was there, basically, you know, play using his character without his consent. And when Doyle actually, you know, compla- uh, complained about this, he actually changed it so that Sherlock Holmes became. Herlock Shlomes instead. <laughs> yeah, that's. Um... <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> um, and at the same time, I mean, obviously the character Lupin. I mean, you've got to look at as well the like French film uh, Zigoma, with nineteen eleven, which is also a big hit in France. It's a big hit in Japan. Sorry, and it in many ways it it sort of glorifies this uh, master thief sort of character that Lupin is. I mean, as I said, he's he's a thief, but at the same time, he's got honour. Everything he's doing, especially in the version we see in Cagliostro, is for the thrill of uh, the thrill of the heist. It's not so much about what he sets to gain, it's about the fact he can pull it off, because he's setting himself out there to pull off these impossible heists, and he's attempted to pull off a pull off a robbery at uh, Cagliostro before when he was sort of like a young thief and now and he was just managed to barely escape he tells us and now he obviously returns but at the same time he's got much more honorable intentions and as you were saying before when we look at the uh the comics in his approach to like violence and sex it's a lot different than we see here here he's sort of like you know he's kind of like the charming he does the heroic thing which again it upsets some Lupin fans but even Monkey Punch himself, he he openly said that he enjoyed what Murakami did um, and enjoyed the film from a distance. Yeah, I mean, he basically, when he's obviously been asked about how people are portraying his, his characters, he just said, well, uh, you know, I'm pretty much, well, make it good, and then he just leaves it up to them, um, knowing that the directors basically would just go ahead and add their own spin to the character. So... 
I don't know if it's if Lupin's the sort of character that's best to sort of like get too hung up over the the details. And I always just say that if you're watching Lupin product, just watch it for for how it is. And certainly with the Lupin we see here, um, I said not only if we've got like the heroic antics of him trying to rescue the princess, we got he throws in like little magic tricks and stuff, which I you even find charming or irritating or like detract from the character. I don't I don't know how you uh, sort of feel, but. I I it's it's he's uh, I guess I guess they're um they're going for I mean as you say sort of that gentleman thief kind of thing uh, raffles or something like yeah. that you know where um where the guy is insanely confident in his own abilities um <laughs> and 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 being able just to pull off a little magic trick uh, he does the thing doesn't he later on with the um with the ring and the ro you know the the fake ring and then there's that rose that appears um it, it, it's just it's just a sort of thing you know you could imagine an insanely confident and insanely competent person probably would do things like that it's a sort of it's a he's a he's a, a film character he's like um like i say he's like raffles he's like um oh who's the who's that french character um the uh, Phantom, or something. I, I don't know. I don't know. It just, it just oh, feels. about diabolic. I'm feeling about diabolic. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, th- things like that, where um, you know, the, 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 these guys are operating in a different, different level to people like you and me. I would, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, that's okay. And it's, it's aspirational. The one thing I would say is, I didn't really get a feel for how old he was. The um, the art style makes him look like he may be about 12 but later suggestions is is maybe he's a he's he's probably nearer 40 uh, because of his previous relationship with the with the with the girl he's trying to save it's um i mean the whole the whole age um difference between the two characters because as you rightly said i mean he first meets her when she's a child and then is romantically involved with her when he re-meets her as an adult, and he's somehow not aged at all in the meantime. But it's so hard with the character Lupin as well, especially the way he he's designed. He's got very much like a... He looks like a anthropomorphic chimp, doesn't he? Especially with the well, head. Well, he, he's got this... Um, he's got this sort of 60s-style haircut <laughs> with... Uh, yeah, it, it's very. We don't want to say he looks like a monkey, but he does. Um, it fits it, in though, because he is, you know, the, he's a thief and he moves uh, stealthily through buildings. And the way he moves, he, he does. Like... He, he does. There is certainly. I mean, if, if all the characters look well, there's two sorts of characters. Quite often in anime, is what is what I see. There are there are a bunch of characters which are what I would call if not traditional anime there's certainly a consistent style so we look at the female characters in the film all look like they're in the same movie Mm. and then there's the three other members of Lupin and his gang all look incredibly uh, what's the word they're like caricatures aren't they um what's the what's his main mate called um Jigen Jigen, so Jigen's always got the hat and you don't really see his face and he looks maybe like a gangster <laughs> but a westernized gangster and then there's Goemon who's literally I mean he's meant to be like the 13th ancestor <laughs> of the famous Goemon um, but he's literally walks around <laughs> As as a samurai in the present day, doesn't he? <laughs> he turns up on a horse and cart, <laughs> yeah. which is is just brilliant. Um, they, he just sort of rolls into town, and you think, oh, how's he gonna sort of play into it? Because he doesn't really get a lot to do, um, apart from like a couple of scenes in it. And it, it's it, his inclusion really only seems to be there just for the big finale, uh, where where um, they they're interrupting this wedding, which is apparently being hosted by the Ku Klux Klan. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> that's a weird thing, isn't it? So it's 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 very much a view of Europe through Japanese eyes, isn't it? Because <laughs> clearly, clearly, this is this is meant to be I don't know, like one of those, like, like somewhere like San Marino or something like that, somewhere sort of in Italy on a hill, yeah. blah blah blah. And so the Catholic Church, they're very they say they get an archbishop from the Catholic Church to come. But I, I can promise you, the Catholic Church would not go and um, 
ordain at well, effectively some sort of weird culty wedding <laughs> where where everyone's dressed as sort of inverse video Ku Klux Klaners, um, trying to invoke some kind of ancient prophecy. Um, it, that was just all a bit weird, wasn't it? <laughs> and, why, and why they had to make... They kind of made the point, this guy's come from Rome or from the Vatican, he's a proper Catholic guy. And it's, it's, again, just made me think there's this, there's this view that... Um, Japanese people have of Europe or France or Italy and places like that, which is kind of almost like stereotypes, and it kind of plays with them a bit, but it doesn't play with them. I think it, mm. I think it, I think it just believes that. It's a bit weird as a Westerner watching it. I know for I know for that, and in many ways, I think I can't help but wonder if it's like just a an animation shortcut, the same way that all the ninjas look exactly the same. And the scenes when we got the guards, uh, when we get into like the clock tower chase, and you see guards going up the stairs, and they've all got identical faces. Yet when they stop, then they've got different faces. So, it felt so like... yeah, so the character work in this is not up to later standards, is it? So... No, I mean it's not. It's not like obviously the the later films, and certainly the detail and like the the backgrounds and many things that we can come to expect from Murakami, they're not there. Even though we do obviously get the do get a flying machine, so we uh... do, yeah. But from, from out of nowhere, um, again, it's quite hard to sort. Of, when 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 is this? When is this set? Um, I, I'm guessing it's set in the 60s. That's why you'd have a Fiat 500 rolling out of Monaco or something like that. But the gyrocopter is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the it's, the the character those those weird metal arm ninja characters that appear to be apes in their yeah, stance the at some point but later on they're just quite clearly just normal people and um there is weird stuff like that but i, I think you're right i think that's a sh- they're, they're like shortcuts made in um in in animating mass bodies of people um which is i mean it's to be it's a bit then when we look at any number of hong kong movies and even like uh western productions where you have like the guys in balaclavas who play like the heavies because it's easier to have like six guys in balaclavas than hire like 20 guys because um, you can you can easily re- recycle uh, guys and we often find in, like John movies with like guys in white suits that you have all the thugs and everyone des- dresses identical for like the disposable uh, cannon fodder Oh yeah, look at Kill Bill vo- Volume One. Yeah, the 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 <laughs> hundred odd guys that look exactly the same, but the one that we remember is the girl who's dressing differently with a different weapon. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 that kind of thing. If you, if you're going to be a key bad guy, then uh, then you get to to dress and look a little different. But everyone else is just generic bad guy wardrobe number one. Um, now someone we haven't obviously mentioned um already is the inspector who is basically trying to capture Lupin, and he's the main antagonist throughout uh, Lupin's career as a thief, and that's Denny Garter, who, depending, on, again, on your translation, is either Japanese or American. I think in the dub, he's American, and in Japanese, he's Japanese in the sub version. And uh, basically, Denny Garter's trying to capture Lupin, but at the same time, he's also investigating the source of these counterfeits. So you have this really almost symbiotic relationship between Lupin and Zenigata where they're forced to sort of like put their differences aside and work together to take down the Count uh, which I thought was kind of interesting to see and especially because the the police captain he's, he's obviously he's like um, oh the inspector from the Pink Panther Clouseau? Yeah he's kind of like Clouseau he's kind of a bit clueless he, he's a little clueless and a little um, single-minded in his um, <laughs> in his goals, isn't he? Um, and again, comes from this. We, we talked about this. Do you remember when we um, we did the Godzilla King Kong film? Yes. Where they sort of there, there seemed to be this world where there's this, you, you, and maybe it was one of the other Godzilla films. I can't remember, but it's like this world where there's this United Nations and an Interpol, and that there's, there's this world police force. That's what they think Interpol is in this film. <laughs> Because <laughs> they've got like B fifty two bombers later on that come along, so he's kind of he's kind of leading this 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 organisation, and there's that 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 doesn't actually seem to be police forces working with each other, but there's this this additional police force, and their only job is stopping Lupin, or certainly his job is stopping Lupin. Um, 
and and he's always got this big red face, hasn't he? And he's constantly stressed, and he's he's get, again he's done in more of a caricature kind of style. He was kind of all right. They're they're um. The truce didn't last for long, but it was a lovely piece, wasn't there? Where Lupin says, "Right, let's um, they're in the trap somewhere together. Let's work together to fix this counterfeiting ring." And he sort of goes to shake hands with it, and the, and the inspectors look, "I'm not shaking. <laughs> <laughs> I just, re- I just refuse to." <laughs> I love that bit. Oh yeah, it's he's got the same sort of budget that General Thunderbolt has in the Hulk. You have to wonder who's funding this operation. And we had the scene where Zengard is trying to get the sort of local UN to to help him to, uh, remove the count, but the, the count at the same time has bribed, supposedly bribed the whole of the, the all these uh, heads of, of state um, with counterfeit money, I have to think. So why why are they, these, these countries so happy to accept counterfeit money from the, the count that they're willing to cover up his counterfeit operation? Because it's not like they can spend it, I would think. Well, it was really weird, wasn't it? Because there's this whole um, conspiracy element that that it spent a good couple of minutes discussing, didn't it? That um, that all all the dark dealings of the world have all been because it's all been funded by this um, this shadow currency. Um, my 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 version calls it the goat currency. It calls lots of things goats, <laughs> but I think it's a, I think it's a mis um, mistranslation. But yeah, and I don't I didn't really get my head around it because there's a moment in the UN or what, what passes for the UN where they're sort of saying. Saying, oh yes, but the Americans don't want to stop this because you know you're buying a load of this currency to give to another country and stuff like that. And it's like I, I, that's not how money works. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very strange, but yeah, this 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 strange little country of only three thousand five hundred people um, exists purely on this known but unknown fake currency production. It was very strange. But I think it's from an, an, an original Lupin story, isn't it? Or um, it, it's based on that. So they've sort of taken elements from it and maybe not really explored them fully within the confines of this film. Yeah. Uh, the other sort of uh, pain in Lupin's ass is his uh, on off lover, Fujiko, who is introduced as Clarice's uh, lady in waiting. And uh, at the same time, she's she's running her own operation. She's either trying to help Lupin or hinder him. You're never sure which side she's really on. But uh, yeah, she's she's a regular face within within this the sort of Lupin universe. And I don't know what uh, where you sort of made of her because I know some people like really sort of down her because of the fact that she just has no sort of scruples about who she's sort of screwing over. She's only out for herself, and in many ways is sort of like the female counterpart to Lupin. So I think this is a bit where the film, watching it, you know, although I knew of the of the later live action film, I didn't know all the background to this um, until I did an investigation later. I think this is maybe where the film fails a little bit because I think there is this presumption of knowledge. Um, so whilst we get an idea of her, because she has the speech with Clarice, doesn't she, where she says, um, oh yes, I'm on his side, sometimes I'm against him, sometimes we share information, sometimes we're even lovers, you know, and it sort of sets her up as this foil to him, but we don't really know who, who she's playing for. And in fact, one moment she disappears and then comes back as a film, as a TV reporter which was a bit weird. So why did she go to come back? She sort of escapes. She's being Clarice's um, like governess. And then she runs away. And then she comes back as a film reporter. And then she does, she sort of helps, but doesn't help. And then in the end, you know, she, 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 she wins the day, I guess, doesn't she with the, with the spoils of war. But um, yeah, I just felt a bit confused because I don't think that relationship was, defined enough he certainly didn't spend enough time with lupin to make it clear to me what the hell was going on they said oh hi how are you <laughs> when they when they came across each other as if it wasn't a surprise that they came across each other and i'm just thinking there's obviously more to this story here than you're telling us i think there's something that really sort of surprised me and even now when re-watching it because i've been a while since i watched it last um is how many failed attempts lupin actually has to pull off the heights because normally we used to sort of like set up and introduction of characters and then they do the sort of like scope of the of, of where they're doing the hit and then they pull off the big heist uh lupin actually takes like three different cracks at trying to 
to rescue uh, the princess here, and it's sort of even like on the end of the second one, he basically barely makes it out with his life, and somehow, for the power of overeating, manages to regain <laughs> his strength and to go back for one like final time and interrupt the sort of like the count's wedding. Yeah, I mean, it was quite interesting how uh, how useless he was. <laughs> there's 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 um there's basically one building he's got to get into. And up to this, up up to sort of about halfway through the film, I got the feeling he was an incredibly competent individual. Like yeah. I was saying, you know, with all his magic. And then he tries to tries to sort of get into the tower and makes a right pig's ear of it. <laughs> Almost ends up dying several times. Um, he he slides down. He slides down a lot of um walls and roofs, doesn't he? <laughs> in uh, in his attempt and gets hurt quite a lot as well. Yeah. Um. And that was all. That was all a bit weird because I thought, well, this guy's meant to be ultra competent, so I'd expect him to have lots of really cool plans or something like that to get. The, and then the end of the day, he was um, he's playing everything by ear, and he, he most stuff he does by luck or by the seat of his pants. And his mates just sit there watching from a distance, don't they? Um, they do that, for the most that, part. Let him yeah. just get on with it. I mean, obviously, um, with his sort of like right on a man, he does do a little bit like Jigen does a bit of the infiltration work and I found that with when it comes to <clears throat> the infiltration like how Lupin like moves and especially you said how he's, he's like bounced uh, off of situations he's got a real sort of like Chaplin-esque feeling to his movement so there's a scene where he's he's swimming up a waterfall which I thought is always quite an impressive feat and the scenes when we get into like clock tower sequence where he's like going through the gears and it felt very much like modern times just how, how he's been shot and moving through the sort of sequence it's got like a real sort of silent era um, comedy sort of feel like if you like wishing a Buster Keaton or Howard Lloyd uh, the way that they would take a hit or they would move through the environment I find them very much the same with Lupin's movements and as you said he's he sort of like somehow manages to forest gump his way for it for uh, someone who's supposed to be like a master thief. Um, somehow things just start <coughs> falling into place for him. So, yeah, I mean, those scenes were excellent, though. I really did enjoy that. That bit where you're talking about where he tries to swim up through through the waterfall. That's really beautiful, isn't it? It's like he's in this in this sort of chunk of water, and and you think he's going to do it, and then he fails. I quite like that about it. I quite like the fact that he was. Um, a lot of stuff that happened to him, he succeeded despite himself and <laughs> ended up where he needed to be. Um, also, when he fell down that, that hole to hell, <laughs> whatever they called it, <laughs> that, that just happened to be in the um, in in the tower, you know, he, and he seems to be able to grab onto the smallest, his arm, he must have the upper arm strength of a, of a, of a, of a well, should we say a monkey? Because, um, <laughs> He, he, he constantly is just grabbing onto the old brick here and there, but I, yeah, it, I never got the sense that he was fully in control. What was going on, but it was kind of cool and it was kind of organic the way that he would just sort of fall down things and end up where he needs to be. And oh yes, he utterly failed the once, didn't he? Where he needed his gigantic meal to <laughs> make himself to, to to make himself better, but. Uh, I kind of like that. That 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 all added to the humour and the fun. And as you say, the whole sort of Buster Keaton, the 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 that slapstick, that visual comedy, I think, was what actually entertained me more in the film than than anything else. And I mean, I, I the scenes, it's those action scenes, the way that the shot are just so much fun throughout the film. And suddenly, when we get into, as I said, we get back into like the clock, the clock tower's J sequence, and the going along the gears. First of all, the fact that how violent. Uh, the film is it really surprised me, especially for I mean uh, unofficial Ghibli movie. But the fact that Miyazaki, uh, Miyazaki, Miyazaki made um, a film so violent really surprised me. I mean, we we have one guy gets crushed by clock gears. We obviously the the count gets crushed between two um, clock hands, which I would I would surprise why he didn't just move out of the way. But never mind. Uh, we had to get rid of him, didn't we? <laughs> I know, but it's it's very surprising that uh, you haven't crushed to death in a in a Ghibli movie. I mean, yeah, in in some regards, 
it's kind of dark like that. But in other ways, it's sort of Saturday morning matinee kind of deaths. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's not as if we're seeing lots of gore and arms falling off and heads being separated. It's it it it's it's not comic. Yeah, I think the Saturday morning matinee thing is 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 what I would do. You know, the, the elaborate ways that maybe people die, um, which maybe takes the takes the visceral element away, I guess. Uh, anything else that you want to talk about in this one? Um, I guess, um, I mean, what the people say that there's an influence on Spielberg um, is kind of interesting. You can see that, again, it's that Saturday morning matinee thing, I guess. I mean, people sort of draw the draw the, the line between it and the Indiana Jones films. Um, where you've got a... A slightly roguish protagonist and sort of that kind of elaborate action and saving the girl is only part of what he's after he's actually after the you know he's after the plates or he's you know those forgery plates or the yeah. money and things like that so i kind of see where where that's coming from although i i don't think this is the first film to ever have that kind <laughs> of idea um it feels very much of of, of its time it's it's very very different to Miyazaki's later work um, in terms of its themes and it, to, certainly in terms of the character work and the animation. Although I think you said before that the the, the backgrounds weren't as good. I think the backgrounds were pretty good. Um, I think there are aspects that were really good. Um, and I just I just had a ball with it really, and I really wasn't expecting it to. The only the only real struggle I had was that I had to do some reading up to tie the relationships between some of the characters together and um maybe i'd have been better served from seeing the earlier film even though it wasn't a miyazaki film um but yeah it, it's what was it just over an hour and a half it's a it's a fun romp i certainly wasn't bored um and kind of made me want to see more stuff or read more stuff um with these characters and that's that's always a good thing if you're interested in the in the not just Lupin but in his sort of his wider universe of his mates yeah um okay so for viewing what would you want to pair with this if if anything well I guess the easy way would just be talked about a couple of other Miyazaki films but um and I know I know we have a very different view on on oh, no, Miyazaki films, as we spoke about before. Um, so, so you know, I, 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 I can't go far beyond um, Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, maybe Kiki's Delivery Service, only in the sense that, that, that they're an extension of this. Um, I was trying to think of, are there any sort of um, films in this sort of, uh, in this sort of gentleman thief kind of ilk, and the one I'm thinking of is called K20 Legend of the Mask. Oh yeah. Um, so that's a 2008 um, live action by Shimoko Sato, um, led by our old friend Takashi Kaneshiro, who plays a kind of. Uh, similar sort of character, a sort of a, a gentlemanly thief, stroke superhero, stroke uh, dystopian and hero of the people, um, in, a, in sort of an alternate post-war Tokyo. Um, well, it's not a post-war Tokyo because World War Two never happened in it. Um, yeah, he's, he's like this circus acrobat that um, takes on the man and stuff like that. That was that was the only film, but it's really enjoyable. Um, Fairly unusual as a Japanese film, I think. Um, but yeah, he was he the Phantom Thief with twenty faces. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of that kind of pulp era, nineteen twenties kind of uh, leading character, a little bit rakish, um, but at the same time, probably his heart's in the right place. Even if his um, uh, occasionally his motives might be a little questionable. So yeah, K K twenty Legend of the Mask. Uh, it's one I do actually have on my own watch pile to still watch at some point um, for myself I mean if we're going with a Mozart movie to pair with this I would say Castle in the Sky 
just it's mm. got the same sort of adventure sort of romp. He's got you know the mystery and hidden treasures, and uh, even though it's a little more whimsical. Um, if you were talking about rogues in the Murasaki sort of filmography, uh, or sort of the Ghibli filmography, I would say like Poco Rosso. Planes. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's as I said, uh, Poco's uh, is another sort of rogue in the fact that he's he's running a sort of racket with the Sky Pirates in the fact that he's shoots him out of the sky, but he's not damaging their planes enough so that they can't repair their planes because he wants to. He keeps this uh, this little ecosystem of crime going because he knows that without them to be there, he's got no one to stop. So. Um, it's a, it's a, as I say, it's a fun 1930s sort of romp, and if you like biplanes and dogfighting, it's uh, it, it's a lot of fun. I've, and I think it's one of the more overlooked ones, which I never understood, because it's a lot of fun. Um, as for other sort of like hard-boiled sort of uh, sort of characters, I mean, the only other one I would go with would be like Go Globe 13, the professional. Uh, there was a Sonic Chiba movie as well made, but uh, the animation, which um, includes the first use of uh, CGI in an animation for some very questionable looking helicopters. Um, yeah. If you listen to Exploding Helicopter, they did a whole episode on the film and certainly focused on those exploding helicopters, on, funnily, funnily enough. Um, but I think, it's, as I say, it's the same sort of like, you know, hard boiled um, sort of thriller that it's sort of like a more throwback to more sort of the manga um, and in that respect you can also look at like series like Black Lagoon um, as well as they're the same sort of cohorts that uh, that Lupin sort of runs in but I mean Go Go 13 is a fun little action anime um, certainly obviously being released in 1983 it's got that old school sort of anime charm to it as well but it's uh, one of one of the old ones that still holds up and is worth uh, checking out, even if it's not got the same sort of prestige of like an Akira or Ghost in the Shell. Um, it's, it's still one worth checking out. But that brings us to the end of another episode of the Asian Superphone Club. We hope, as always, you've enjoyed listening. Uh, you can, as always, check out our blog, which is asiansuperphoneclub.wordpress.com. We are also on the social media, so you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And, uh, you know, let us know what you think. And uh, we do post things on there, not only about the show, but also uh, other pieces of information things that we uh, think of interest and uh over on the blog as well it's not just our archive we've also got reviews on there we've got like the movie archive uh on there we've got the mixtape we've got transcripts of the dark side of asian cinema so there's plenty of stuff to uh check out on there as well steven is there anything else you want to plug before we go um, anything else I want to plug? I over on my Guelo Ramblings World Tour podcast. I've recently done a special edition about the remake of Suspira. Um, uh, spoilers: I don't like it very much, but apparently that's not a popular opinion. And um, like I say, I'm doing some work for a new website and eventually podcast called InTheirOwnLeague.com, which concentrates on female. Um, uh, female filmmakers um, and not 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 just directors, but other people. Um, and I've recently done a piece on there about the Chinese American actress Anna Mae Wong, as I was talking about at the beginning. And once that gets published, I'll link that up on our site because I think that it kind of a bit of crossover there between uh, what we're doing here and what they're doing there. Fantastic. Um, well, again, thank you as always for listening. And uh, Stephen, it's your pick next. So where are we going? <laughs> Yeah, so, <laughs> so um, you, you and I have a, a, we kind of feel that maybe you do the the, the cult stuff and I do the highbrow stuff. It doesn't always work out that way. Um, when we were talking about the sort of hundred best films, I guess that was getting on for a year ago now, wasn't it? That we were we were going around that, yeah, it's or maybe been it, about that now, so. Yeah, um, I did talk about my love for um, Taiwanese cinema, which I don't think we've covered a Taiwanese film um, on the podcast so far, and specifically the the new wave of the um, of the eighties and nineties, and um, of my love of Edward Yang films. Now, I was going to ask you to watch a four hour film, <laughs> but I've realised that that's both mean and with our accelerated. Um, podcasting at the moment 
possibly not very not very fair for you to be able to fit in amongst other things but i would like us to look at an edward yang film i'd like us to look at his film the terrorizers um which is story was sort of three stories in and around taipei um don't just spoil it too much but um i think you may get a kick out of it or you may be bored completely but um it'll give us a, a, bit, a chance to talk about sort of taiwanese new wave which is uh, an important movement um that's still kind of going today with a number of directors so uh maybe there'll be some uh, professoring happening around then to help uh, help bring you along thank you <laughs> a metaphor a metaphysical mystery about the lives of free couples in taipei is uh what wikipedia is telling me it is so this is certainly going to be an interesting discussion i'm going to say right off the bat yeah don't, don't worry it's not four hours long it's only just over it's not even two hours long okay right well on that note uh thank you to my co-host Stephen. Uh, pleasure as always sir and uh we will be back next time uh looking at edward yang's the terrorizers so good night Kinono 